Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBTQ plus experience. My guest today is Paula Harrowing, a lesbian activist from the UK with a multifaceted career and love life background, which I can't wait to dig into today. Paula, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you for asking. We had a, a really nice discussion a few weeks ago, and I, there's so much um, meat on the bone, if you will, in your life that I'm not really sure where, where to begin. So we might as well start at the very beginning. So why don't you give us a sense of your background and your upbringing? So my background is a very mixed. My mother was born in Burma. Her father was Indian from Delhi and her mother was half Burmese and half English from the north of England, a place called Hull. My father came from a very large working class family on the south coast here in Eastbourne. I can't remember really if there were that many men. He had a brother, but he was literally surrounded by women. And he was desperate to learn to fly. So he joined the Air Force. After a while, he was then stationed in Nairobi, Kenya. My mom at the time was living in Burma. And when the war kicked off and the Japanese invaded, they fled Burma and went into India, where they basically waited for my grandfather, who was an engineer at the time, and he went back to try and bring out some of the workers as part of the company that he was with. And they walked from Burma into India. So yeah, he was gone for months. And then after the war, like a lot of mixed race families, they moved into Africa. It's that really colonial trek across Africa. My mum ended up in Nairobi in Kenya with her father. I think my grandmother had died by that point because I don't remember her at all. And my mum, having been a nurse, then joined the East African Airways as air stewardess. And my dad, by that point, was a pilot. He'd gone into the Air Force and he had worked with East African Airways. And my parents met high in the sky. So, yeah, my mum has always kept her history very to herself. She has really strong had really strong elements of racism. Her brothers were dark haired, dark skinned, and the women in the family were fair haired. So her moving into East Africa, she was seen as a white person. And so, yeah, so East Africa, they got married. I have a younger sister who was born there. She identifies as African. She has lived in the UK three years at the tops, I think. And for those who aren't able to watch this the video you are blonde i think maybe blue eyed, blue eyed looking as british as they come exactly i've only ever been stopped once by a friend of mine he his mother was burmese and he's half burmese half portuguese and she kept saying to me where are you from i was like eastbourne eastbourne on the coast and she goes no where and then i explained she goes i can see the burmese in you so i don't know there must be maybe my big nose or something. I don't know. There's something that obviously she could identify. But yeah, there's yeah, I am blonde, blue eyed, as is my sister. My cousin, male cousins and my uncles are all dark haired and dark skinned. So my parents split up 
uh, when I was five and I went straight into boarding school at five in Hastings, which is down the road from Eastbourne on the coast. And my mother then travelled with my younger sister through Africa, ended up in Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia at the time, and then ended up finally living in South Africa. Did they bring you with them or did you get pulled no. out of? Okay. <laughs> no, my my mum just didn't want me in a way. I look very much like my father and she was pregnant at the time with me and was therefore forced into a marriage which she didn't really want. And I think I carried that with me as a burden, really. She just, yeah, I'm too much like my dad. But you did end up living for a while in Africa. How did that happen? Yes, I did. Okay, so I was put into boarding school from the age of five up until the age of nine, I think it was, and then went to live with my mother, who then put me into boarding school again. And my experiences of South Africa at that time was living under apartheid. Segregation was something that you white South Africans just accepted it as being the norm. And the British who moved to South Africa during apartheid tended to be very racist because why would you live in a country that literally separates you in terms of colour? So I found it very confusing that my uncle had to live in a different area to us. And when I asked my mum, she just wouldn't tell us. And when we went out as a family, my uncle would drive and we would go into, say, a restaurant or a cinema and they would say, no, don't come in to my uncle. And he would just walk off. So people thought he was our driver. And for me, there was that real confusion as like, what's going on? And also, I experienced some very difficult encounters, I think. I don't know if encounters is the right even word. But as a young kid, we were with some family friends and uh, we could hear we were a little eight I, yeah, it must have been about eight. I don't think I was even nine then, running around. And we could hear this kid screaming and Afrikaans shouting in the air. And we ran around and we saw this white Afrikaans farmer beating this young black boy and shouting at him. And both, I was with this friend's, both parents came and collected us and took us back into the house. Just as an Still, aside, you, you, if I recall, you told me that the reason for the beating was he'd brought cattle in from the fields and one or two of the cows were missing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And literally, I can just remember those screams. I could remember so much of it and how both like all the adults just would not discuss it. So we stayed over at the house um, where we were visiting. And in the morning, when the woman who was the chef came in to prepare breakfast, she was beside herself because she was just so distraught. And she explained to the woman who she worked with what had happened. And the young boy had died and it wasn't her. It wasn't her child, but the young boy had died. And the family couldn't prosecute the, actually couldn't do anything with regards to the white Afrikaans farmer because the whole family lived and worked on his property. So basically so their, their livelihood and their shelter came from, would the, have guy gone. Who yeah. came from the guy who beat their child to death and they couldn't press charges. 
Yeah. There's things like that literally will remain with me. Just even just like the simple things of going shopping with a young woman who must have been about 18 at the time, a black woman. We would write. And again, I'm only small. I'm a, a small, you know, little kid. We would write the shopping list together. She would hold my hand. We'd go to the shop. She would have to go through the black only entrance. I would go through the white only entrance and there'd be a hole in the wall where she would literally shout at me going, we need the flour, we need the sugar. And I would literally run around collecting all the bits and pieces, dragging the basket up to be to pay. She would hand the money to the cashier. The cashier would give me the change. I would drag the bag out and then we would walk home. Just as an aside, I grew up in the American deep South. And while we, clearly didn't have the beatings and that severity of the discrimination. There were colored only entrances and water fountains and sitting in the back of the bus. And my mother brought my first friends, my playmates when I was growing up, were sharecroppers on our cattle ranch. And she brought us to the drugstore for a milkshake, not thinking because she came from the north. And unlike in the movie, The Help, if you saw that, yeah. uh, they didn't refuse to serve us. She later learned after we left, they'd thrown the dishes and the glasses that we'd used away because nobody would drink out of it again. So it was a much milder version, but that kind of racism was across the world. Yeah. For me, we then came back to the UK. I must have been about 11. And my mother had to come back because she wanted a divorce from my father. And the only way they could actually legally do it is for her to return to the UK. And it was during that time that I put my foot down, there was no way in hell I was going to return to South Africa. I was just about to sit my O-levels, so I must have been 14, 15. So for me, I made a decision at 15 to stay in the UK. I refused point blank to return to a country that literally for me, I couldn't live in. I moved in with a family friend from school whose daughter I actually had started a relationship with at 14. So she was my girlfriend. Obviously, no parents knew. I stayed in the UK, was with my girlfriend. My dad paid um, the family like maintenance for me. And at the age of 17, I had got a scholarship to go and do photography. And basically the mum that I was living within the family said, no, you need to go and get a job. Um, so I think there's elements of her that must have known that her daughter and myself were obviously more than just friends. So literally we packed up and went to London. The daughter and you? Yes. Basically it was the daughters. It like she had enough. So, and they're Catholic, Italian. So it was like chaos. You just let's get out. So we went up to London and we stayed initially for the first year in a all girls christian Adorable. yes oh god yes literally we were hardly ever alone and it was like a challenge for those kind of intimate moments when nobody was around so yeah that was hard work more than anything certainly added a little excitement to the few times you did get together it, <laughs> it certainly did and on, on almost on a timer it was just like <laughs> oh my god here we go at that point, had not met any other lesbians at all. We actually did think we were special. Well, I know we were special, but yeah, we did think we were special. And where 
my partner was working, there was a woman who we knew was like us. She was very elegant, almost like a Hollywood actress, very well kept, beautiful lipstick. And it was my mission to find out who her partner was because she would never say, she would just go, oh, my partner. And eventually she said to me, you want to know what gender my partner is? And I was like, oh, really? Yes, so she came out to us and my partner at the time would have to go home at the weekends that was part of the family agreement for her coming up to London so I went out with this woman Ottilie just fabulous to all these lesbian clubs and I remember the very first one I walked into and overwhelmed by the mix of women age race people from out of London Londoners shitty music it was like oh my god we're not special there's loads of us all over the place I suspect, I suspect most of the people in this our audience if they're lgbtq can relate to that first time you got thrown into a sea of people like yourself i used to have long bobbish hair and very red lipstick so we would just swish in and swish out and i remember going into one of the clubs and one of the girls coming up to me going are you a tourist I thought she meant, am I from out of London? I said, no, I'm from the UK. She goes, no, are you just visiting? Assuming that obviously I'm not a lesbian. So that completely threw me up. Like, no, I'm not a tourist. So yeah, so my, literally my first year running in and out of these clubs just gave me confidence to want to be out. Catherine, who I was with at the time, no, no interest whatsoever. She came once, I think, once or twice, and just found it overwhelming. I suppose she didn't really identify as being lesbian as such. Uh, she always said that it was just me that she was in love with. I think at that point, having lived literally in the closet for such a long time, I wanted to find my new freedom and explore what it was like to be part of the LGBT plus community. So what around what year was that introduction oh, to, the, God, to the clubs? Jesus. I don't know. I would say 80 somewhere there. For me, London was so exciting. There was such a choice and diversity for women at that time. And which doesn't exist now at all. Not to say that there aren't clubs and pubs that are, women focused but nothing like what we had initially and we moaned even then about not having quality venues as did our gay male counterparts we had shitty nights which nobody wanted like a Wednesday or a Sunday because nobody could fill those nights so yeah when I look back we were far better off in lots of different ways than we are now in terms of the LGBT plus community. I think all of us would say the same thing. In New York City, the number of gay and lesbian bars that are existing are a shadow of their former peak, probably a quarter or a third as many. And I'm reading articles from left about all the lesbian bars shutting and how there are only a dozen or whatever left across the country. Some of, A lot of that has to do, of course, with the, the rise of apps and people's ability to meet elsewhere. Back in the day, that was the only place you knew where you could go and find each other. Yeah. I was listening to friends of mine talk fairly recently. They were saying, and this is true, you could go out every night of the week to a lesbian bar or club 
every night if you so wanted and it would be a different group of people there were some women who literally you saw everywhere but you would go to different parts of London and see different groups of women and it was tribal in those that time like the butch leather dykes the sort of lipstick lesbians the kind of like uh, vegan fabulousness of all of that so you would go somewhere and there would be all mixture of people and we had one club night once a month in the place called Brixton in South London called Venus Rising and it was monthly and the only time that all the tribes came together because you would go in and it'd be like a sea of leather in the front and then you would have all the butch leathers and it was just it was rich diverse exciting yeah so for me part of my coming out was all of that and I am special but obviously not that special but yes I loved it and and that Venus Rising was the equivalent of in small towns the one bar where everybody had to meet unlike London where it was so plentiful that you could go to your own specialized bars yes we were spoiled for choice definitely so my kind of venturing into clubs and then work for me started to really change I came up to London first working as a receptionist at a architects who had this most amazing switchboard, which was the pulley cords thing. I have never seen one of those before and I absolutely loved it. So it was like me being trapped in some sort of like 30s film and I had to have a plastic mat underneath my feet because every now and then as I moved one of the cords into the slot and rang the little bell, I'd get electric shock, which I absolutely reveled in because it was so exciting. (laughs) So I was there for about a year and a bit and then I ended up going into TV first and then film. I've been obsessed with film. I'm a freelance photographer. And my way to absorb things is visual. So yeah, films, photography. And I ended up working with UIP films and rank films. As, as a camera person or in what kind of role? No, I did media and marketing. So we would get the films obviously before they're certificated. Is that a word? Certified? Uh, Sure, certified. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. And we would then compile uh, all the press packs. So we would get all the original photographs. I remember collecting the photographs from Herb Ritz that he'd taken uh, pictures of uh, Richard Gere. They haven't been seen. They're beautiful. So, yeah, for me, this was just like I was reveling in it. And premieres where Princess Diana came to and holding hands with Maureen Sturbergen from Back to the Future. It was fabulous. And then from there, I started to do clubs, gay clubs. And again, that kind of fell into a friend going, do you want to do a club night? And I went, yeah, what do I do? So organizing and producing the event. Everything. And for me, a lot of the lesbian clubs' music, I just didn't like it was quite hard I like to sing along when I'm dancing and I ended up working a club night called Queer Nation which predominantly was black gay men music was phenomenal we had people like I don't know if you know her Barbara Tucker from the states we had a lot of American DJs that came over and I then started to do different clubs for women 
again, because my friends that I wanted to be around me, we all loved the same music. So I then got DJs to be able to do that. Alongside all of that, again, chaos and fabulousness all at the same time. For me working at Queer Nation, and I did another club night called The Fruit Machine at Heaven, HIV suddenly became a reality. I had friends of mine who suddenly got very ill and died. I remember taking a friend of mine who was a rent boy, beautiful, just beautiful. He got diagnosed and he was so fearful of being in the UK that literally he packed his bags off and went to Sitches because he wanted to live his last days in the sun. And I think the difference between now and then in terms of the meds is phenomenal. We had people who were taking multiple pills, also dying really quickly. I would be going to two, three funerals a week. And I think for me, that whole period of time, my sanctuary and saviour was actually doing clubs and in particular Queer Nation. It was felt like family. It was a Sunday, no drugs, bar, smoking weed. Drinks finished at half past 10 in the evening. So you really went there to be part of that queer family and to dance. At that time, also, I read an article about Tina Chow, a restaurateur, it girl, married to Mr. Chow in New York. She got diagnosed HIV positive. So from going from being like it girl to all her social network almost disappearing, the realisation for me that women do and are becoming HIV positive suddenly just clicked. Before you go on into the next phase of your life, which came out of that realization, AIDS was uh, announced in the New York Times on July 2nd, 1981, I believe. I, I was actually on Fire Island at a breakfast table with my housemates reading that article, wondering, will this have any impact on us? And it obviously had a huge impact, but it took a while. Even though we began changing our behavior and worrying, it wasn't really until around 1985 or 86 when I began to have people close to me disappear because of AIDS that the reality of the situation and the pervasive fear and panic took over and ran our lives for the next close to a decade. I also know that there was a fear on the other side of the pond of the disease coming from the U.S. to England. At what point would you say all this began to happen? When in the 80s? I would say the late 80s. Again, because I came onto the scene quite late, I missed elements of it. But I had friends of mine who were diagnosed in the mid 80s. And then literally, obviously, as I started to go into clubs on a regular basis, I'd be like doing three nights a week at a club. So I would see the same group of people that coming in or not coming in. So by the time 94, 95, yes, people were dying really quickly and dying unsupported in lots of different ways. For people to go into hospital to visit, sometimes you weren't allowed in. Gay men found it very difficult to support their gay male friends who were HIV positive because of fear and denial. That for me was something that became more apparent as I became more involved. I was wanting to do some sort of level of support around HIV positive women or to bring up the issues of HIV and AIDS also within the lesbian community. So in 94, 
4.95, I joined a generic HIV support agency called Body and Soul, which was based in Earl's Court, supporting the women's group there. The women's group met on a Tuesday and from four till nine, so only a few hours, really. The women who came were young women in their 20s. Some of them had been diagnosed HIV positive during pregnancy so we had kids as well and within that network I saw for the first time really so many lesbians working within the HIV sector some supporting obviously the women's group and more generically within the main organization. In the US we feel that the connection between the lesbian and gay male community really grew out of the fact that lesbians nurtured and nursed us during that time. That whole period for me was entering a LGBT community that I wasn't really necessarily familiar with. For me, I think this huge thing around women and HIV did actually resonate because a lot of my gay male friends were able to access services and support really quickly. And the thought of women and HIV and what do you do? There was only one organisation at the time who supported positive women only. Joined Body Positive as a volunteer and working with the women's group, it became a nightmare. As the more and more women started to act services, the battle for space in relation, say, to gay men was too hard to manage. For that day on a Tuesday to try and get gay men out of the centre so women could come in, it was like hard work because gay men did not want to hand over that space for one day in the week. Tell us what you did next. We were locked out of uh, Body Positive and we had heard it coming as a volunteer. So I literally contacted some friends of mine who are journalists. The day they locked us out, we were in the Guardian newspaper and a couple of others. And we told our story straight away. We had amazing support from people who, gay men, POS Nation, two guys in particular, very supportive of us as a group of women and kids and for some people living with HIV. So they were 100% behind us. We literally had to start from scratch. So it was a huge task to start to engage funding premises, which we did really quickly. I'm actually really surprised how quick we did it. Even now when I look back, it's like we we never slept. It was just we worked six days a week. 12 hours a day. It was just relentless, really relentless. But we set up an agency supporting HIV positive women. Their partners tended to be heterosexual men who were positive. And then we had children and teenagers, some of whom were living with HIV. So the organization is still running. I left in 2005. I learned so much during that period of time, 10 years where I reevaluated everything I had thought, any prejudices I had were gone. I learnt the most from young people, positive teenagers and children, how they view life and how HIV was just on a long list of other things that they had to deal with. They were far more together in a way than adults because adults came with so much baggage and prejudice in terms of how they dealt with their HIV status. And I think that was the huge difference for women who had only ever had one partner, married, 
and then through that they became HIV positive. For them, that reality was something that they had never even thought of because society had constantly told them that it was people who were promiscuous, people who were gay, people who were drug users. We had a number of women who were diagnosed through their children, having been married for numbers of years. One girl in particular, she has a daughter who's 10. Her 10-year-old daughter got really unwell. They tested her and they found out that her daughter was HIV positive. So therefore must have been positive from birth. And then they tested the mum. She'd only ever had one sexual partner, which was her husband. So all of that was like a, a learning curve for not only myself, but I think for issues around HIV in women. The treatments at that time were focused primarily on white gay men. So the side effects were very different for women and very different for people of colour. On top of that, the drugs were so new that kids, when they were put on the treatments, were a little bit of an experiment in some ways because nobody knew at that time the outcome, how they how the kids would react, what were the side effects. So quality of life, I think, for a lot of the children at the time was really discussed and fanned up because a lot of those children who were on meds their quality of life deteriorated quite quickly because of the side effects. So you're talking about treatments. Are you talking about things like AZT back in the day, or are you talking about protease inhibitors when they finally were introduced? Initially, there was AZT. I remember that quite well. And I remember we had a girl of 16 who lost her entire family. She was the sole survivor of her family. She came in with all her meds one day and she went, look, there was, I can't, I think, what is it? It was a like a bright yellow orange liquid that she had to take. And she said, it's disgusting. Do you want to taste it? And I was like, okay. And yes, just the whole thing around, she had to take this, I think, two or three times a day. Vile. Just, and they, a lot of the kids did it really because they knew this is the only way that they could survive is by taking their meds. It was just... A, a, a really difficult time. And there were so many political battles between this whole thing around the gay plague and then the sanitization of AIDS. Yeah, money, obviously key. Different groups fighting for a very small pot of money. In the US, Ronald Reagan didn't even mention the word AIDS to most of his eight years in office. And there was no funding from the government helping research solutions and cures. Was the British government any more facilitative no, the British government, we had Clause 28. So you then throw in human rights and then HIV. Yeah, no, our government was just as bad. Clause 28, um, Clause 28 made homosexuality illegal, correct? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So that all just sat together in a time where life was very precious. And yet the reality of being part of the LGBT community put you at risk on so many different levels. In concluding this segment, talk a little bit about how successful it grew. And I remember you telling me that story about the owners of the body shop reaching out to you. And then secondarily, we have entirely omitted the fact that you were having a relationship with your partner in this venture the entire time on the slide. So the organization that was set up in 1995 still exists. We had the immediate support from 
uh, Anita Roddick from the Body Shop Foundation and her husband, Gordon. Anita initially supported the women's group with complementary therapies and I had applied for funding. I got a phone call saying, oh, Anita Roddick's on the phone. And I'm like, oh, God, really? So I picked up the phone and went, hello, Anita Roddick, not really thinking it was her. And it was. <laughs> so I had to spend time going through loads of her questions. She hadn't thought of women and HIV. She wanted to know why treatments were only focusing on men, what the side effects were. Yes. So she was with us as an organisation almost straight away and then with Gordon her husband he came in and I think he was drawn in by a lot of the young people who was able to speak out we had a meeting with him very soon after we got locked out of body positive we had found a place to rent at the homeopathic hospital in London it was two floors Gordon We'd walked around it and we went and sat in a calf around the corner having scrambled eggs and tea. And he's just said, what do you need? And I said, we need both those floors. And he went, right, what I'll do is that we will get all our legal guys onto it. We will set you up. So we never really got like a money support. We got literally the real support of the body shop at the time so they did all our legal stuff for us they managed to print flyers that was far more helpful for us at that time than just giving us a wad of cash because that is priceless to have that support and also putting HIV on the main street as a family issue for the first time ever that you can't buy I think for Anita at the time, she was really drawn by a lot of the young women sharing their stories and some of the kids. We did a film made by HIV positive children and teenagers and those who are affected. We allowed them to speak freely, but they couldn't be seen. So they would choose an image to represent them. And we had a massive screening at the Odeon in Leicester Square. And Nita, before we had the, the screening, she said, quick, I need you in the toilet. So I came charging when she's sitting on the loo. She's going, now, what do I need to say? Anita was a teacher, so she's very youth based. And she said, oh, I've just got my I've got my notes. And she said, OK, let's go. And then she watched the film. She went up and she spoke and she spoke from the heart. And the impact of that film on her was phenomenal to hear the difficulties of living with HIV the fact that a lot of the kids had to take multiple pills hiding them in their pencil cases just that yeah we were very blessed I think to have such an amazing patron because both of them accepted patronage for the charity it just during the whole time of setting up the HIV charity, I met a young woman who came into Queer Nation, the club, wanting to collect money. She was running the women's support group at Body Positive. She loved Queer Nation. She loved the music. And I spoke to her immediately about women and HIV. And she said, come down. I need help. I was immediately drawn to her politics her passion, her view on the situation that we were living in. We started our, which changed from being obviously very close friends to then being lovers. I've always been out. I've never really been in. I 
never. But for us doing work around HIV supporting primarily heterosexual transmission, there is no way we could have been seen as a couple at that time. I really believe we wouldn't have been taken seriously. And she was bisexual, is bisexual, I think. And she had a beard who was somebody that she had known for a very long time. And he was the boyfriend. So for 10 years, we lived in this very strange world where... She was ostensibly your straight business partner, but behind the scenes was your significant other. My significant other, she was indeed. (laughs) You know, the reality of HIV at that time, there's no way a lesbian couple could have set up that organisation and be taken seriously. I was very well known on the uh, queer scene. I couldn't have been in the closet if you paid me. The issues around the organisation being homophobic, for instance, no. It was identifying different needs within the community in terms of HIV for women to access services that predominantly gay men, if they have children, are very adult-based. So there wasn't really any support at all for women, heterosexual men, so, so that went on for about nine years, and then how did it come to an end? Uh, we had two women who were part of the organisation accessing support at the time. Both were HIV positive and had been in heterosexual relationships beforehand. They had split up. One of the women I knew from coming to Queer Nation, but I didn't know her status until she walked into a support session. She loved Queer Nation, gave her an opportunity to meet queer women. She felt she wanted to explore being a lesbian. Also at the time we had another young woman who came to me, because obviously I'm the only lesbian around, wanting to go to gay clubs. So I literally put them both together saying, right, one knows where to go and go with her and see and enjoy. They ended up in a relationship which lasted two years, really sweet couple, and then one of the women died. At the funeral, the memorial was all around this woman and her heterosexual life, husband, her kid. They knew about her partner being female the last two years, but didn't share that. So I sat with the woman grieving for a relationship and a love that she had lost but couldn't be seen. And I think for me that was the turning point because I thought I can't do this anymore being invisible in our relationship because if anything happens, I will be seen as the sad, sorry lesbian who was hankering after the straight woman. And I waited for two years for her to make a decision about whether or not she would come out and we would be visible. And that didn't happen. And that ended ended you and you being expelled from the charity you helped form, right? Yes. I wanted to take some time because I was exhausted. Part of that was I wanted to like just take six months, a year, just out, just to have a break from the 10 years from obviously the relationship that had ended. She just went, no. And I was like, okay, fine, bye. A big mistake for me, I think, because those 10 years have made me who I am. And I have relationships with a number of those people still now. 
some of whom I knew when they were like 15, 16. And people have passed that I don't know. I don't know when, I don't know if they're still here. So yeah, so for me, it did feel very much a bereavement almost in terms of just not having closure, not having an opportunity to revisit that. Where did you move next? went off to South Africa to see my family, came back. And a friend of mine who used to be the stylist for Scissor Sisters and Gossip said, oh, come take some photographs. And I literally then picked up my camera, which I had done all those years back and started to do various different behind the scenes, ended up doing London Fashion Week. I've worked with people like FKA Twigs, Rita Ora, just and different choreographers, photographing dance and movement, also film production stills. So suddenly I was in a world that I love. I get the biggest thrill from being on set and taking production stills. Uh, so you were doing I, what, what you had actually wanted to do at age 18? Yes. All those years ago, I've loved every moment of it. Being part of that creative community has been a real joy. What with that and my disco dancing, I'm very happy. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, you moved into your current role in an elder care facility for LGBTQ people. Yes. Tell us so, how that happened. A friend of mine said, did I want to do some volunteering? I... I hadn't really been doing much other than obviously my freelance photography had time. A position came up at an organization called Opening Doors London, which is an organization that provides support to LGBT members over the age of 50. An underserved constituency, presumably. I think if you look at any of the agencies, they tend to be all youth based. And I think that's just the nature of life society whether it's around homeless young transgender youth it's all very youth based so for me I hadn't really thought of a bunch of oldies basically which quite a lot of my peer group are so it was very much that so I came in to do a three-day week fundraising basically building up the community because the organization isn't that well known within the LGBT plus community. So I started work in November 2019. And by March, the following year, we were in lockdown. So all the drilling I'd done in terms of fundraising went out the window. So I developed and grew the ODL Instagram and created what I, for me, again, I absolutely love a real generational view of our community the diversity the creativity and hopefully the unity that we as a community need to have the fundraising for me at the time came primarily from the lgbt plus community it generated over sixty thousand pounds in a very short time when we were all locked indoors and also raised our profile, we had uh, support from Victoria Beckham, Benedict Cumberbatch, Alan Cummings. So suddenly the voices of a lot of our older members were being heard. Yeah, my group of friends is very mixed and are very mixed, always have been. I have friends who are 17, 18, right the way through to 
their late 70s. So for me, my growth and development is continuous because I'm constantly learning about life from different generations and how they view LGBT life. You and I share a desire to bridge the generation gap in the LGBT community, among other gaps. So I commend you for that focus. You've really had a varied career. Your first role was? Work-wise was working as a receptionist in an architect thing, then going into uh, TV, then going into film. Yes. And then club promotion for H- five, six years. HIV support. Yeah. Celebrity photography and on-set photography. And then elder and then LGBT elder care. And you're I think you're just approaching a half century in age. I can't wait to see what your next uh, fa- phases will be. Yeah, I don't know if I can cope. <laughs> I think you'll do just <laughs> just fine. I want to ask you one final question. We were talking about this beforehand. I've had anecdotal information from a lot of different quarters in lesbian friends, different views of what the the position of lesbians in society, and in particular within the LGTB community are right now. How do you see the role of, of a woman whose focus is primarily on other women as romantic partners fitting in within society right now versus 30, 40 years ago? Same. I identify as queer. I have done from the moment I stepped into lesbian land. I'm a lesbian, but I identify as queer. My social network from day one has always been very mixed, and that included trans women, trans men, and I have never felt threatened in terms of us disappearing as lesbians. Terminology has changed, I think, more than anything, but our experiences as lesbians haven't. I don't ever feel threatened. Trans women, relationships, no one's forcing you to do anything. For me, it's never been an issue and I don't see it being an issue now. I think 20, 30 years ago, it was probably easier because I don't know. I think it's just my group of friends. I have never experienced any sort of transphobia biphobia amongst my lesbian friends. In fact, I have two friends who are lesbian who are in long-term relationships with trans women and have been for over 20 years. I suspect it's simply that's always been your outlook and it hasn't changed. I wonder, one question that I ask everyone at the end of our interviews, we're now LGBTQIA+. Back then, it was lesbians and gay men, separate and then somewhat together, starting with AIDS. A lot of what we share is an outsider status, but of course, that gives you a perspective on life that is in fact common. What do you think we have to bring us together and how do we forge more of a true sense of community in this very complicated, mixed up world we're in today? I have no idea because for me, I am constantly bemused, confused, angered by judgments made and prejudice. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all consenting adults and we can identify however we want and we should be able to. We, LGBT plus QI members of the community, we need to be united because mainstream society does not like it does not like queers it does not like homosexuals it does not like trans people so it's like until we sort ourselves out we are going to 
keep being bombarded by mainstream bigotry because if we can do it to ourselves it enables uh, society to do it to us as well this has been a, a fascinating walk through your life thank you so much for sharing it with me and our audience i look forward to seeing what you're going to do next thank you so thank much, you Mara. very much thank you thank you so much for listening this episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nikolov. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.